Hi, I'm Caruso, and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to episode 53 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Molle, your host. This week, I speak to Karu Sell. Karu is the hitting partner of Naomi Osaka, and he tells us 10 things he has learned from practicing and touring with her and her team. We start off by talking about his college days at UCLA, giving the pro tour a shot, as well as what he's doing when he's not on court with Naomi. Before we get started, a big shout out to our sponsor's head, Karu actually gives us some insight into the re-re-released Head Pro Tour 2.0, the racket originally used by Thomas Muster when he won Roland Garros in 1995. Okay, let's go. Hi, Karu. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Glad to be here. Great. And yeah, unbelievable to have you on. Can't wait to hear about your tips from being Naomi Osaka's practice partner. But before we get into that, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about yourself and where you're from? Um, so I'm from Brazil. Um, I, you know, born and raised there. Played all my junior tennis uh, in Brazil and uh, you know, ITFs, all that stuff. Then I moved to the U.S. Uh, in, in 2012. Uh, played at UCLA for four years. Did a little bit of coaching, then went into pros for for a few years. And now I'm working with Naomi Osaka as her hitting partner. So it's been a, it's been quite the journey. Great. Well. Tell me, let's break it up a little bit. How did you get recruited for UCLA? Um, well, college tennis was always kind of like part of the plan. You know what I mean? It was never like, I think I always leaned a little bit more towards college tennis, even though I was doing good in juniors. Um, so by my, you know, kind of last year of 18s, um, I wasn't doing as well as I thought I should have. Um, a little bit burned out. So I started like, you know, my coach played at Georgia, so he's like, let's let's send you to college. And he just kind of like, I mean, I had good good results in juniors. I got to top 50 ITF. So, you know, I was already being recruited by a good amount of schools. Um, and I was actually pretty much committed to go to Florida State University. And kind of like an opening happened at UCLA. Um, like I had reached out, didn't really ever hear back, you know, in the beginning. But then... I think I knew Marcos Giron from juniors. We, we had a, a long run on the Orange Bowl 16s. We both lost to the same guys. I lost in the semis. He lost in the final. So I knew him from there. And I think like he was just kind of like him and another another guy that was going into UCLA was like to the coach. He was like, you got to get this guy. <laughs> He's good. And it just kind of like just like that, He sent the, they sent me an email and I was like, I, I, I didn't even visit. I texted Florida. I, I emailed the, the coach of Florida to say, it's like, look, UCLA gave me, gave me a good offer and I'm just going there. I didn't, didn't, didn't even meet the coach. I didn't, I knew of UCLA and everything, but, and the rest is just kind of history. I just found, found myself in the lineup and, and played my four years. So it was a, it's a pretty interesting, um, kind of lucky situation where one guy went pro, there was scholarship available and, I ended up there and it was kind of the perfect fit, actually. Who was the guy who went pro? Uh, I believe at the time it was Daniel Kazakowski. I don't know if you remember that name. He was a, he American guy. He was like a really good junior here. And, and I, I don't know if he was, like, I mean, I think maybe top 10 ITF junior. Um, he just had injury issues, I think, all through his career when he went pro. But 
yeah, and then I, Dennis Novikov and I joined, joined in at the same time. Dennis Novak as well? Novikov. Oh, sorry, Nova. no, sorry, <laughs> Novak, sorry. Yeah, yeah no, Novikov, the American. You guys had a pretty stacked team there. I was looking, Clay Thompson, I said Marcus Giroud, oh, yeah. Mackenzie Donald, Adrian Puget. That's a pretty, that's a serious team. Oh yeah, we're a solid team. We made uh, one NCAA finals that we actually, uh, Puget lost a, a match point. I saw it I briefly explained to the yeah, audience. It's, where... it's kind of like a crazy thing happened. So we... And the, the the format of college tennis is best out of seven for for people who don't know college tennis. So you play three doubles and and whoever wins two points wins one point. Uh, two doubles wins one point and then play six singles simultaneously. Each singles worth a point. So whoever gets to four wins the match. And we were tied against Virginia three all three matches all uh, came down to the last match was Puget versus Mitchell Frank and he was serving at 5-3, Puget was serving, 5-3, 40-30, um, plays a point where he hits a back and go, goes to the net, um, hits the volley, and Mitchell Frank uh, misses the lob. So we were like, oh, we won it. So we're about to rush in the court. But in between that volley and miss lob, my friend uh, Puget actually touched the net. And he got called for touching the net. And it just kind of down, went downhill from there. And it's just kind of like, who touches the net, first of all? Like, it never happened. And who touches the net at that moment? So it was just like, it's kind of like a legendary story. Like, we're, it, it's, it, it, was, it was kind of crazy. But uh, yeah, it happened. 2013, my freshman year. Does he still have nightmares about it? Yeah, he. I think now he's gotten he's gotten better at this self. You know, he just kind of messes with himself at that at that point. But um, yeah, it was a tough one. It was a tough one to come back from. Like that's for sure. Yeah, no, I was I was speaking to Kieran Fitzgerald, who we mentioned before, who played in San Diego and would have played you guys a few times, and got got yeah. got their ass whipped by you guys a few times. And uh, he was telling me you must check out this point. I didn't know about it, so I was researched it earlier and I was like heartbreak that's really heartbreaking stuff yeah that was a heartbreak one and the following year too we had like a very good team with Mackie Mackie McDonald came in and uh, Gage Brimer came in we had a stacked team Clay Thompson Marcos and we ended up losing like a few seven sixes in the third uh, against Oklahoma and USC and just winning and we bet USC a bunch that year. It was just kind of bad luck. It's tough. Team team tennis, like I, I love team tennis. It's any team uh, event that I just think is it's super fun and, and you know, you're playing as a collective group. So uh, even though, you know, we never won a title, you know, it's kind of like a little bit of my family here. So it's been, it, it was a good, it was a good time. It's the exact same as a lot of my Irish friends who went to college in the States. They all have a little family in the States, be it yeah. they tend to go back to whatever university you're in every now and again and they've their friends there. It's, it's it's a really good experience that anybody who goes has. Yeah, I don't think anyone it's not really only about the tennis thing. So that, that I think you you will develop if you stay playing pros as well, but it's just a little bit different. And I don't think anyone has ever like regretted it. Um I mean you can ask, you know, Cam Nori who <laughs> It, you know, he could have been top, probably top 70 earlier, um, but, he, you know, he loved playing college tennis. And we did actually on our website, like a, a series of interviews, and it's kind of always the same. At the end, it's a lot of the same in a, in a sense of like everyone loves the, the, that kind of family that you build and into that relationship. And I, again, you make a lot of contacts. It just helps you a ton. And 
I think with tennis the way it is today, like everyone is peaking at 30. Like if you leave college at 22, you're so young still. So it's not like you're missing, you know, all your prime. You're just, you're coming out, not even close to your prime yet. And fresh and fresh. So yeah, exactly. tell me, so after you finished uh, in UCLA, you decided to go pro for a while. Yeah. So I played, I played it four years, finished in 2016. I actually didn't go pro for another season. I, I it just, I know how pro pros is financial stuff is really, it's really complicated to stay on the tour. And I just like wasn't in the right mindset at the time. So I actually went to Pepperdine uh, University, which is here in LA. And I coached for a year there. Uh, I was like the volunteer coach there. Um, I was still, you know, playing, playing men's opens. And I was actually playing really well. I came off a very good season, my last season in UCLA. And then um, at Pepperdine, I played a future that was in Calabasas, which is super like close. And I ended up qualifying. I beat the two seed with the French guy, Hamery. Calvin Henry at the time and I wasn't even I was just practicing with the team I wasn't really trying and got to the quarterfinals lost with Klon like in a tough match and I was like well I'm, I'm, I'm playing well I feel like I should do this and then but I committed to the end of the season which was like April uh, with Pepperdine and then at that point I was like you know what like let's give it a go um, so I went out and played a lot of men's opens to, to get match rhythm and then uh, on my there was like a little circuit of futures here in California Claremont um, Laguna Niguel. It's like three features like in September. And I was like, I'll start there, see how, how I feel. And on my first future back, I won it. Oh, great. <laughs> so, yeah. So I was like, well, I guess I have to do this. Uh, yeah. I qualified. So four, four rounds of qualifying and five rounds of main draw. I won singles and doubles. So I was like, well, I guess <laughs> I, I got to give this a go for real. Um, so yeah, I played for from that point on to like mid 2019. It was just, you know, financially is really hard. I got, to, I won another two futures, uh, got to 370, something like that was like my highest ranking. I was playing really well, just had a little, little bit of an injury that kind of set me back on 2018. But, but other than that, I was doing, I was doing really well, but just financially, you know, with no support and anything like I, it was just really hard to stay out there. Um, you know, my parents were helping me as much as they could, but you know, I'd have, I was having to kind of do that, you know, coaching a little bit and playing and and you know you're not like fully 100 percent in it because you're just kind of like how am i how am i gonna pay rent this week or how am i gonna pay for these flights and all this stuff so it's a it's it's a tough thing i mean i'm sure you've heard all about this but yeah it, it just became financially really hard and i got some opportunities in la before naomi that i just kind of couldn't pass on at the time so what happens so you say oh you're like okay well this isn't working out. I just can't afford to be playing every week and too much external pressure financially. So what opportunity arrived? Well, I just LA, LA is a big coaching market. Um, you can, you know, financially become like really stable here. So I, I actually had done a little bit while I was at Pepperdine. I did a little bit of hitting partner stuff with uh, USTA. I went to Fed Cup with them, uh, all that stuff. But I was just kind of like here in LA, I found a few clients like um, juniors really just to coach. Um, and all of a sudden I was, you know, I was on the court six, seven hours a day and, and, and kind of enjoying myself here and not having to travel all that stuff. And it, it's kind of like your first time you're secure, um, financially, like on your own, like you're not relying on anyone else and just kind of felt nice. And I was like, oh, I, I, I am enjoying this and, you know, I can build the career from this. I thought my experience in pros already had been, you know, 
I, I still think I could have probably gotten cracked maybe the top 200, like if I stayed there a few more years, but from the 200 to the 100, that's where, I mean, that's where it's just... To the money. And, but it's also like where it's, where it's scary, right? Like you're like the 200 to 100, you're really battling to like, you know, crack that, that top 100. And so many people spend so many years on that, on that little kind of fluctuating 200 close to 100 and all that and everyone is so good there i always tell people anyone who's playing top 200 tennis can be playing top 100 player uh players for sure it's just you're play competing for last points in challengers you have to go on crazy streaks to to maybe crack the top 100 it's a, it's a really complicated part in uh in, the, in that transition to pros and and again even if there's like money from quality money from qualifying slams and all that stuff still like you're still kind of struggling at at, at which is crazy for, for me like the 200 250 you're still kind of struggling financially it's not necessarily like you're you're able to you know afford traveling with a coach and all that stuff it's hard so depending on also your 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 situation you know if you have federation support and all that stuff but but it was a you know and then i started doing this here um and i was pretty sad up until the you know the naomi opera came in but um, that that was just kind of my my mindset at the time. I was just gotten gotten a little over it, and there was like the whole transition tour period that was also like kind of pushed everyone a little bit over the edge. So it was kind of a weird. If I if I it's kind of if when I look back now, it's like I would have had 2019 with ha- half the season with the transition tour, and then 2020 with this. So it would have been kind of the worst time to, to be on the tour right now. So. So I actually timed it well, luckily. So, Karu, when did uh, how did the Naomi opportunity arise? Um, honestly, it was like out of nowhere. I was just sitting at home one day. It was before Asia to Asian tour uh, last year, so Beijing, all that. I just got a text from um, a couple people actually, like that week. I can't remember what week was it, but I just got a text from a like a bunch of people. I was like, hey, like there's someone is moving to LA who is like a good player. They're going to look for a hitting partner, blah, blah, blah. They wouldn't tell me who. Um, they would just say that. Yeah. And I was like, are you looking for someone? Um, and it was all people who knew me because I did this before USTA. I, I went to Indian Wells with like USTA and Shelby Rogers and Bethany Maddox and all this stuff. So I got a couple of people. Steven Armitage was the first to, re- to reach out, actually. Um, and then a couple of people from L.A. because I think uh, a steward who is her agent uh, was just reaching out to people here. And my name kept popping up. Um, I literally got like four people to call me by the fourth call. I was like, look, can't, like, is this happening or not happening? What's up? I didn't hear from anyone for like a couple months because they went to Asia. And yeah, just I was like, ah, I guess that didn't work out. Um, and then when they, I'm sorry, late in November or mid-November or something, I finally got a text from Stuart and we just met up. And he was like, okay, let's just do a couple week tryout. Uh, they, they were training at UCLA, which was perfect. I was like, okay, let's do it. So we did a couple week tryout in December, and all of a sudden they're like, okay, we're going to Australia. And I was like, all right, <laughs> let's do it. Um, so I, you know, I just for me the opportunity of you know working with someone like her, and and not even just her, but you know the coaches, the people that who's going to be around her, um, you know, it just would add greatly for you know my experience as as a coach and everything. So. Um, 
Wow. So, yeah, I didn't even, didn't even think about it. <laughs> I just went with it. That's that's crazy. Well, there, let's get to the, the beef of this episode where you are going to tell yeah. us multiple things you've learned from practicing and being around Naomi and her team. So let's start with number one. So number one. So I think a lot of it uh, that I that I put here might be not your just your typical things that you want to hear, not necessarily about just ball striking and all that. But uh, I just think every person is is different the, the way they work and the way they they go about things. So uh, you know, with with Naomi, she is actually fairly resourceful and creative on the court, and that can be both good and bad. So because uh, you can make bad decisions. But with Naomi, like what, what I learned a lot, um, especially from her and uh, number one, what I have here is just make good decisions. Decision making is it's key. You know what I mean? Even if you're someone who who's very resourceful and, you know, crafty and all that, sometimes the simplest shot and not trying to make everything more complicated than it is, is um, it's gonna, it's going to be your best, best bet. You know what I mean? The key. If it's simple, make good decisions. So that would be number one. I don't think you're going to get to the to, to be the best in the world without being able to make good decisions. Yeah, I, I just think, I just think a lot. You know, a lot of people. You know, I see players who are, who are incredibly you know good and powerful and all that stuff, but you sometimes you just see their decision making. You're like, whoa, that is just not that's not what you should be doing right now. Um, and I, with her, it's like it's incredible. She makes like great decisions most of the time. So. Um, that would be number one. And just to end, number one, do you think this great decision making comes from you just got it? Does it come from experience? Does it come from having a good team? Or does it come from all of the three above? I think all of it. I think you need a you need, you know, kind of the freedom to make the decision, to make the bad decisions as well, you know, and learn from them. You need the people around you to to you know also keep you in check. So I, I think it's just a good combination of, of everything. But and you know it, it depends on your character, you know how your personality is, like how how you handle maybe criticism, things like that. But uh, definitely, it's something that you can work on. It's not it's not something that is like, oh, I was born with that. You you can definitely work on that. I know it because I had to do it myself. So. Great, you just got to be. You just can't be the person who keeps making the same mistake, or else you won't go far. Yeah, but, okay. exactly. Okay, so number two. So number two, what I have here, I I wrote hyper-focused practice sessions. And, and I don't say it in, uh, this is not in, you know, her being hyper-focused or anything. I say in, if we're going to work on something, if Wim comes in with a plan, it's like, hey, we're going to work on this today. We're going to spend probably all the time uh, working on that and not try to cram in too many things every session. You know what I mean? Like, so if we we're going to work on slices, we're going to work a lot on slices today. It's okay to not hit cross courts and down the line for for a day. So we do that a lot. I think Wim, Wim is a great coach and he plans, you know, everything ahead and we come in, we make adjustments, obviously, depending on how things are going, but, but he's, he does a tremendous job at that, at like kind of, you know, keeping the focus at a certain thing for, for a good amount of time, whatever he wants to work on that day or that week. And I think with athletes like Naomi, when you do that for, you don't have to do it for a, you know, long periods of time. We're not going to work on something for a month. She's going to, she's going to get it after, you know, two, three days. So uh, that's been a very eye-opening thing. Sometimes I think we try to cram so many things inside a an hour or two hour practice that um, you actually don't end up like improving anything. You just kind of like run through things. 
I I completely agree with you. You can be caught. You want to work on everything and you spend the sessions working on everything and you get nowhere. That's a really good tip where you just focus on one thing, keep working on it maybe for a session, two sessions, two days, three days and do it as well as you can. Stay focused, which is hard to do. So that's that's a skill within itself. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's tough, cause especially if it's something you're not comfortable with and you haven't spent all this time doing it. Uh, it can be kind of annoying, but it, it's important to... to to actually, you know, mentally stay strong through that stuff. Great. And okay, number three, Karu. Number three, we got footwork. Um, like developing your game from the ground up. Uh, I think, you know, even someone like Naomi, who is, you know, multiple time Grand Slam winner, there's still, you know, basic things in footwork that she's she struggles with. And, and I think a lot of players end up like trying to develop from their, from the top you know like just oh my swing it's always like make a mistake oh my swing was bad now or whatever it is but it, it was were you in in position were you uh you know loading with the right leg all that kind of stuff we spend a lot of time actually um you know with footwork with uh you know proper loading proper uh all that kind of stuff choosing the right base so um that's i mean it's not necessarily something i learned but it's something that uh, I'm, I was glad to see that, uh, you know, when I, when I was training, that's what I was thinking a lot. So I was glad to see that, yeah, we're, we're doing that at the top, building building your game from the ground up, um, especially ground strokes. They're, they're called ground strokes because, you know, you, <laughs> you need to develop from, from the bottom first. So that's very important. Anyone out there, just make sure you're developing good footwork. Great. Now, I've, I've seen her use the, uh, seen plenty of videos actually with a ladder. She loves the ladder and she's some, I think she's good footwork. I know most top pros have good ladder feet, but she definitely does. And she's often seen using it, which is great. Yeah, we, we use a lot of the ladders. We use, you know, cones and, you know, reaction stuff and all that kind of, all that kind of stuff. So she, she, you know, she definitely puts in the work. Um, and also just in general, just in practice, not even doing it post or pre with ladder work, but just you know, as we're hitting, as we're doing that kind of during practice, really emphasizing, uh, you know, the lower body, making sure she, she's she's doing the right things uh, when she's moving, moving, recovering, all that stuff. I think it's uh, really important for anyone to focus a lot, a lot in, in that. Um, and you kind of think you can have like a tremendous uh, improvement once you improve your uh, your footwork. It can be like you can feel it much more, I think, than just by having good strokes. 100% agree. Uh, okay, number four, Karu. Number four, I have depth. Um, just depth of the shots. We work a lot on that. Um, I think there's sometimes too much emphasis on power, um, you know, in coaching these days. But as actually Wim said it uh, a couple of days ago or a week ago or so, he, he said depth is like the main cause of mistakes if you're hitting the ball deep you're gonna generate more mistakes from your opponent than if you're just hitting hard so you know always making sure whatever drill you're trying to do if it's not deliberately to hit shorter on the court maybe slices or angles stuff like that making sure you you're putting a target to hit the ball deep um it doesn't have to be that wide as well um uh, you know but depth is 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 incredibly important especially at this level like you a couple inches further you know deep in the core you're gonna you know you're gonna succeed much more than uh you'd expect actually 
Yeah, I can even at the lower levels, if you've good depth, you're going to yes. just pick up easy points because people aren't like the pros who can pick up those deep balls. But question, do you, when you practice depth, what would be a sample drill? It's like hit the cone or hit like 30 balls past the cone. Do you do them sort of drills? Yeah, it would be more area. Not necessarily cones, but areas where um, on the court where she needs to hit, you know, 30 balls there, 20 balls there. Or even not just necessarily she's stationary. Sometimes, you know, I'll be moving her and she needs to hit the hit that area. At the same time, actually, you know, going the other way too, like making me hit deeper balls and so she can come up with like still come up with deep shots from those deep balls. Cause again, in the pros, there's a little in, in, in a lower level, as long as you make it back, sometimes you're gonna be okay. But if in pros, if you know, some player hits a good deep ball. And she's not able to handle that and hit the ball back deep. Um, she can just be setting the ball short. So, so a lot of emphasis on on depth. A lot of um, you know, especially errors. I thought I don't like. I don't think women do like cones is more if we do drills if he's feeding and stuff like that. But if we're hitting, it's more like a big area. So it, it's just a little bit different. Yeah. Great. Okay. So number five. Number five. I have it here. It's something that I actually never like really thought that much and i wish i did is like generating power uh from the hips um i think uh, i i used to think a lot about my legs um but a, a good way to stay strong through it is like that hip rotation uh making sure because um naomi sometimes can have like the tendency of guiding the ball a little bit when she gets her hips around like good load on the leg whatever leg she she, she you know if she's going to open stance or close stance whatever but making sure the hips like really like turn quick as you know, she's a strong girl. It makes such a big difference in, in how powerful she hits and controlled power too is not necessarily like just wild. It's not like opening the hips too early. It's just kind of like that unit swing, but really like off when you're pushing off the leg, really making sure that the hip is coming around quick. And so you're going to create more racket head speed. Everything is just kind of like a, it's a really interesting thing. I always, I never really thought too much about it. And then I realized like, I could do a lot of it on my backhand and I don't do it enough on my forehand. And I was just like, oh man, I should have been thinking about this a little bit more <laughs> uh, when I was playing stuff like that. But it's really, really an interesting thing. Like when you can generate the power from, from the hips, um, it, it really helps you stay strong through the shot and create more power. And how would she work on that? Would be in the gym or on court with medicine balls or any specific drills? Medicine balls, we do a lot of that to warm up, actually. Medicine balls, we have, uh, you know, just in general, just typical nothing. We're not reinventing the wheel. Anything that I think most people are doing with medicine balls, we're doing as we're doing too. Um, a lot of, you know, some hand feeding stuff. So you're having to generate the power. You know what I mean? You don't have yeah. like the ball to kind of just guide it back. So hand, dead ball, hand feeding stuff. So you can really like you load and push up the hips, load and push up the hips. Uh, in at the gym too, there's 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 some exercises that kind of that be kind of hard to explain in a podcast, but you know exercises of like creating you know hip thrusts and yeah. and things like that where you where you you really like you know working on that and because it's a lot about feeling that too. Like I I when I you know whenever they're doing things, I kind of try to like do it myself, so I try to understand it. And you know it's a lot of feeling that those muscles. Like I I you know I never really felt too much i never really thought too much about my my hips and now that i'm playing i'm like oh like i i need to do this to feel it a little bit more and and all that stuff so she's uh, she at first you can tell that she wasn't really comfortable with that too but now she's just 
it's just very automatic and it's been really hard to actually like push her <laughs> push her back on the court because she's staying so strong so that's a really important thing especially a little higher level people that you know are trying to maybe add a couple couple a little bit of speed to their shots i think that's a, that's a good tip and it looks even more effortless once the hips are in, yeah. involved yes exactly this podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. That purpose is also in their name. ASICS is an acronym which means Anime Sano Incorporate Sano, a Latin phrase meaning sound mind, sound body. Today, the brand is still dedicated to that founding belief of demonstrating the positive effects sport and movement can have on our mental well-being all over the world. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever, which includes the new Court FF3 Novak, the shoe designed from the ground up with the help of Novak Djokovic. Get your pair now at ASICS.com. Okay, so number six. Number six, I kind of lumped a couple things together. It's more about like, um, you know, a character thing, but I, I wrote here, be open-minded, uh, trust the people around you, and be okay being uncomfortable. Um, and she she actually does a, a great job trusting the people around her. And obviously, she works incredibly hard at the gym and, and on the track. But now on the court, you know, working on things that she, you know, she's not really known for, you know, her volleys or her slice or whatever it is. And it can be a little bit annoying sometimes for you to go out there and do things that you're just kind of like, ugh, like I'm never going to play like this. Why am I doing this kind of thing? Um, not just her, but just in general, we all have that. Like, I'm never going to play like this. Like, why am I working on this? But, um, you know, trusting that you you have to add certain things to your game and there's always like, you know, a new level to be reached in tennis. And uh, I think that's a really important thing for anyone in the that is in the, their tennis journey, you know? Yeah, well, that's what makes all great champions, isn't it? They just yeah. strive to be better, to fine tune everything in their game because there will be a point 30 all I don't know serving for another Grand Slam where she'll hit a slice yeah. or a volley and all that work yes. pays off for that one shot exactly for the one shot exactly exactly our point like I and mean, that's kind of exactly what we tell her like you don't we're not expecting you to start 19 slices like fed but maybe you're gonna steal one point that you do it and that one point might be the biggest point of the tournament that is it Okay, so number seven. Number seven kind of is on that same note, but I, I just wrote here, like, stay curious. So um, in that note of being open-minded and doing, uh, you know, things that you're uncomfortable with, also don't necessarily just be told what to do, but, like, ask the whys. Why are we doing this? Why are we developing this? I think we, she, we actually in this last, like, few months, we, we, we hit a little bit, just me and her, like, while Wim was in here. And she seemed like she was getting, like, much more curious about just tennis in general, her game and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, once you have that tennis conversation, especially you, you know, if, if you're a player and you have a coach, I'm, your coach is going to love that. Like, if you want to have that conversation, like, why am I doing this? Why, uh, how can I learn this better? Like, why am I struggling on this shot? I think um, she's, she has, she has done a much better job. I think now that she, you know, it was a new team this year, all this stuff. But I think, you know, now we're kind of like in a really good place. And I think that's very important for tennis players just in general, like state, don't, I mean, obviously listen to your coaches, but don't just be told what to do and mindlessly do it. Like learn the whys and the hows and all that stuff. Um, so it w becomes much easier in a sense of like, Hey, am I, I'm struggling with this ball. Like, why am I struggling? You know, when we were practicing, we were doing certain thing. 
uh, why am I doing it differently now? It's it's easier to kind of revert back to like a point where you're you knew what you were doing, and learning more about tennis is actually going to help you like just become a better tennis player in general. Well, I think that would really help her when she's in slams and she doesn't have a coach and yes. something breaks down and she goes, oh, you know, it can help you break down stuff, get to the solution and figure yes. it out yourself. Exactly. She again, she's she's a very good problem solver. What I'm seeing, what I've seen so far in. Um, but you know, tennis is tennis is hard. Tennis is it's just a mental battle. So um, you just kind of when you kind of learn more about the whys and hows, and I I just think you can you can always like okay maybe take a step back and and you know maybe start making more balls a certain way. Remember something you did in practice that uh, you're actually like it's ingrained in your mind and not necessarily just like oh, I did it, but like you know I forgot it like as soon as we were out of court. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember why I was told to do that and I don't know what it was for. And yeah, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Number eight. Number eight, just simple serves and returns. Spend a lot of time in that. I think we we always spend, you know, extra time serving or returning. It, can, it doesn't have to be both on the same day. There's most, most days we actually just do one, one of those. Um, but, you know, go out there and serve and return. Like if you can add whatever time that you can add to your practice session that you can serve and return a little bit more. I mean, it's just your way to start the point. So you, you need to be good at those two. So make sure you, you, you're spending time on that and you don't have to, I think we we do what we do a lot. Sometimes we, you know, we just kind of focus on two serves or one serve, even like we don't even go for that long, but just really specific kind of go, goes again to the hyper-focused practice. You know, we're only going to do kicks today or whatever it is, but Go out there and do that because that that's gonna obviously. I mean, it goes without saying how important it is. Again, you're going back to one of your previous points where you're not trying to work on everything. You're just working on beat the kick serve or beat a return. So it's keeping that philosophy alive. Yes. Okay. Number nine. Number nine, and that's I think this last couple couple points is more like you know thinking you know as a Grand Slam winner, I'd say so. Uh, I have number nine, focus on your side of the court. I think, um, you know, scouting reports, I think can be a little bit, it's nice to know how, you know, your opponent's going to play, but it can be just a little overwhelming in a sense, like you you end up adapting to the player. So, you know, what I wrote here, and I, I think that's kind of our mindset when, when she's going to go out there, it's like play your game, you know what I mean? Because make them adapt to you make their, your opponent adapt to you don't adapt to them just because you know a couple extra things about their games so i think focusing on your side of the court making sure you're coming you're going into the into the match with a clear game plan executing that game plan and trusting the game plan and your style playing your style not trying to just make changes just because that person plays a certain way or this and that just focus on your side of the court and you're going to be you know much more successful Great. And finally, number 10. Number 10, just mindset of a champion. I think uh, walking that kind of fine line between arrogance and confidence, you know, it's like, it's a tough thing. Tennis is just, I think, I, I personally think that have more, way more than half the battle, it's already before the match. It's like you're playing someone who's 100 spots ahead of you. It's like, oh, like, uh, there he's so good, whatever it is, especially when you're a junior, it's the hardest thing. Um, and I think, you know, uh, you know, I try to ask her, the, you know, things like that. It's like what's when when you're winning a slam, it's like you, you, your mind is to be in the right place. And tennis is such a mental sport 
that having I'm not saying walk out like you're the biggest star in the world if you're just playing in there in, in your club league but having a mindset that um you know you're you're good and you you can beat anyone at any day don't, just don't you know go into the match like i i know i lose six four six four for this good player it's gonna be it's gonna be nice no just uh, have that mindset of, of a champion but not cocky yeah, exactly. Not cocky. It's a, it's a fine again. It's a really fine line, right? I think I think the big three does such a good job at like kind of hiding that <laughs> yeah. you know extra cocky part. Like, right? I'm sorry. Like, I you know, but you know, Fed and, and Novak and and Rafa, they're they're in another league, and you know, they have to be like you know they they respect everyone and they go in, but but you know, there's that that kind of like little bit of edge that like almost like it can be cockiness sometimes where man you're just not going to lose to this person like you're just not going to um, doesn't matter rarely, how well they're playing that, that day okay. yeah, exactly rarely it happens and i think we see that more often on the girls side coming out on top on bad days it's a little bit harder um but we you know obviously with serena with some of the girls and even when they only want she's on so uh, I just think that that kind of mindset, and again, really hard to develop, really hard to, I c- couldn't even tell you <laughs> what it is to like, you know, close out a slam. Um, you know what I mean? That's just a whole different ball game from what I've experienced, but um, definitely um, a good mindset and a solid, um, just, you know, staying, staying confident and trusting your, trusting your process. Uh, it's very important. They were 10 insightful points, Karu. I know, as you mentioned, you're not reinventing the wheel here, but you're just emphasizing no. that simple things are what work really and executing the simple things is what's important. Exactly. And okay, well, look, we, we'll move on to the last section of the podcast where we're just going to talk a little bit about what you're up to right now when you're not on the training court with Naomi. But before we do that, I just want to ask you, I saw you had a video with the head Pro Tour 2.0, which is it's a comeback of the old Thomas Muster head racket. And it's the racket, Andy Murray's racket is based on that racket. I know there's other guys out there using it, maybe not the younger guys, but what was or what is that head Pro Tour 2.0 like to play with? It is good. It, it's, I, I mean, it's a little, I'm not going to say, it's a little bit hard to play once you actually go into playing points because, I mean, it, it's an old school feeling racket. It, it doesn't have a lot of, you know, the sweet spot's a little bit small. But man, when you're hitting the ball clean, ooh, it feels good. It just comes, the sound is good. It just feels very old school. There's it really like, plows the ball it, it, it has good amount of mass so you can just you can clock the ball but there's that you know it's a weird thing of, like, it, it's not necessarily like a, a powerful racket but you can really hit it hard but the feel is just amazing i really liked it I, would i play with it no i need i need a little bit more help <laughs> in certain certain spots but unbelievable racket is it like a prestige really so it's like a prestige yeah i played with the prestige for for like a few months, like six months, I think in 2019 um, or 2018. And it feels a lot like the prestige. Um, you need really need to, it kind of, if you don't have good strokes, it will kind of highlight that. You know what I mean? If people with good strokes, solid contact, all that stuff will help, uh, will, will, you know, benefit from playing with it. People with kind of like not great strokes, you know, that can maybe get away playing maybe with a babble out or something with like a little bit bigger head size should stick with that but you know kind of that 
if you have long, nice full strokes, you know, good dis- good distance between the ball, oh, that thing just goes. Especially on the back inside for me, I was like, oh, that's that's that just feels good. That's that's nice. I always felt those sort of rackets. I'd love to play with the prestige, but I don't have the feel to play with one. But yes. if I find on the backhand with a smaller head size, that's a ninety-five square inch head size, even yes. ninety-eight ones on the prestige, they're not forgiven enough. They're just lacking something. No. No, I, the prestige I had was a 98. Yeah, the prestige I had was a 98. And I just always felt like I had to be just so sharp. And I'm a clean ball striker. And I, even there, I was like, you know, in a match, you're not going to win just because you're clean. So you need you need a little bit of, of help. Um, that's why I switched to the, the speed because um, just uh, the extra 100 square inches, I have a minus customized and longer and all that stuff but really for hitting i like on the back end uh because i can be a little stronger through the shot because i have the two hands on the on the racket that had pro two felt felt very good on the forehand it's a little tougher for me i need i need to be like really dialed in to to hit the ball like well which is like it's fine on its own way it's really fine and it's like it's kind of a funny thing i think every like kid should play with a racket like that like once a week just to like you know, have to be dialed in for like an hour or so <laughs> and make good, you know, good ball striking. Well, it's, it's a bit like the tennis pointer that we have. I'm not sure if you've seen it is, is the wooden stick, the wooden spoon. Yes, I've seen it. Yes. Th- that's based off, that has the exact exactly. same measurements of the sweet spot of the old Sampras Pro Staff. The sweet spot's in oh, the wow. exact same, and the measurement is based off that. Now I know that there's no strings in it. But it and That'd but it's the same thing where we encourage people to use it once a week, twice a week, warming up five, ten minutes just to get you that feel of the sweet spot and being clean and getting those feet moving. That's funny. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that's actually that's perfect. That's actually the, the perfect thing. That, that would be just if that little wooden spoon became a racket, it would be the, the head pro tour. <laughs> and tell me, so if let's say you're a player who hits kind of a flat ball, has good feel, likes a serve and volley, that would actually be a good racket for them. Gray racket. Yes, gray racket. If you, you know, fully trust your strokes, really, you know, go for them. Don't, you know, there's because there's some people who are, a little more passive with their shots. If you really go for strokes, you want to play aggressive, come in, serve and volley. Very good for serving. Very good racket for serving. The accuracy and all that stuff. Not that great. Like the kick, a little bit tougher because of the string pattern plus the small head size. But for the flat serves, the slice serves, ooh, that it just moves. Um, so good rack, good racket for that. Like definitely, if you have that kind of style, go for, go for it. Nice. And now we're just going to lead into the last part of this podcast where we ask what you're up to when you're not on the court. And I initially came across you from the videos you had up of Naomi. You put up the odd practice one and you'd send them on to me, which we really appreciate. So you've started up a new, obviously an Instagram account, My Tennis HQ. You have a YouTube channel. Tell us a bit more. Tell us the name of the YouTube channel, actually. Is it My Tennis HQ as well? Yeah, it's My Tennis HQ as well. Yeah, so we have a... The, the website is kind of our, you know, that's uh, where we started. That was about six, seven months ago, mytennishq.com. And it was just kind of creating content, content around tennis that, you know, maybe answering questions that people aren't really getting the right answers to. And some things I, I just think, so it's my friend, myself, uh, my friend that played at Pepperdine actually, and his uh, other teammate that played at UCLA. So it's the three of us. No, writing some articles where 
you know, we, I just, we just felt like we had some sort of like an insight that a lot of people, maybe, you know, your, your normal like club coach and all that stuff, you don't, don't have the access to certain things that we do these days. Um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of answering questions. I mean, really like we have articles about anything, like what, what are tennis players drinking on the court? you know, just recovery strategies, all this sort of things. There's more instructional stuff. There's more, you know, prize money related stuff. We actually have a very good uh, breakdown on prize money uh, and, and an article uh, recently on our website, which was really good. You can tell, it, it shows how um, people who are, it's a kind of a funny thing, but funny and not funny at the same time, but like a player who's 400 to 450 makes as much as like someone on disability social security here in america <laughs> and it's the person who's so we had a whole breakdown of that um so we did that and then uh we started an instagram account um just to kind of post some of the instructional stuff uh that we wanted to do but we we end up you know we a lot of the things that we see on instagram that we enjoy that we think oh this is a good tip or this is a good video we share on our instagram but yeah the youtube and the website is kind of like our main focus where again we like like i said i the reinventing the wheel part i think i see a lot of stuff online sometimes that i'm like wait that that this is way too much like no one is doing this like don't try to just because it looks good on video doesn't mean it will help you 100% on the court, right? I think simplicity in tennis, it's already a complicated game. Simplicity is is so key. And I just, we just kind of wanted to, you know, we have a, plat- a platform. We each have our own experiences. Like I'm traveling with Naomi. I'm seeing tennis at the highest level. I love tennis. So like when I travel with her, you know, sometimes they will have to do this or that. And I'm like, okay, I'll see you guys later because I'm going to go watch some tennis. <laughs> um, Kid in a candy store. Exactly. I love it. I just love watching it. I love like seeing, um, you know, again, it's uh, each person plays so differently, but they just make it work, right? You're the new Medvedev compared to, to TM, whatever. Like everyone is so different. So I really love it. And I thought... Um, I, I kind of always, comp- what I compare to what we are doing with our website, we're trying to aim to do is, for example, I'm a, I'm like, you know, a mid-level golfer. I, you know, I shoot in the 80s, 90s, and I can Google something about fixing whatever, like, a, oh, how to fix a slice, whatever it is. There's going to be a billion things online, uh, but so many things are so gimmicky and, and that, like what is what is actually then then I'll ask someone who actually plays pro golf and they'll they'll give me such a simple tip or some, such a simple thing and I'm like wait why why are they trying to create all this stuff online that it makes me more complicated than 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 it is and I think with our insight and again like I I try to soak it in everything that I'm learning from Wim or from from you know the the fitness coach anyone who who I'm, who I'm around and any other coaches and players and anyone that I've been around I, I kind of sponge uh, a lot of the stuff uh, from them because you know it's just a big learning thing and I, we just wanted to kind of share that we wanted to we have our experience and we're not saying like we we know everything we actually you know we don't know everything we we just we just like keep learning on the go but i think we're in a great position of being around people who are you know at the top of this profession and we just kind of wanted to share it with with people and keep it simple keep it fun uh i think that's uh, also another part of it we all have jobs so <laughs> we, we're not like we can't just be on the court shooting videos all the time and 
writing articles, but um, it's been really, it's been a really fun thing. And I think we're just kind of starting to hit our stride and we're going to do a lot more record reviews too. So I think that's, that's a, that's kind of like a, an area where I think people like to hear, you know, from actual like players, like, what do you, like, what do you guys think of that? I think there's, there's sometimes people reviewing records that like you can't really trust them too much, I'd say. <laughs> so True. I think that's a big, big, yeah. You just kind of like, Oh, do you really know what you're talking about? Things like that. There's like some nuances with the racket and all that stuff that I think more experienced players can really like tell you more about it. Ultimately, that's why I don't review as many rackets as we should. We I rarely actually really do great reviews because, look, I haven't played at the highest level of the game. It's, it's a bit like somebody reviewing a race car or a fancy car where, yeah. you know, you got to be able to push it to the limits to really know how good it is. And if you're not a good racing car driver, right. you're not going to do that to a car. Sure, you know what it's like exactly. around the city, but ultimately... Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Like, I, I, you know, I love cars. I'm not... I drive... I, I think I'm a good driver, but I'm probably not. So, like, I'm not going to review cars. You know what I mean? It's not going to be my thing. Um, I just like... I, you know, I spend hours watching car reviews. But it's that that's exactly what we're trying to do. Like, compare rackets, you know, the feel, all this stuff. Um, so we're gonna, we're gonna do that. And again, uh, we, you know, I've been following you guys for, for so long and I appreciate that, you know, you guys have been supportive during this, um, time, you know, we just started not too long ago, but, uh, yeah, it's a, Great. it's been a fun project and it's been a good quarantine project too. We're, we're glad that we had it before the quarantine started. So it's been, it's been a good time. Well, I look forward to seeing more of your views. My last question to you right now, it's a tricky one. Karu, very tricky. Mm -hmm. Are you going to put in a good word into Naomi to get her on this show? Oh, I'll, I'll put in a good word. I'll put in a good word. I think she's, she's probably a little bit bored. We were just practicing. So maybe maybe she can she can do it. You actually, you know, it's funny. You sound you sound just like her agent. Like I, I've been on this call for an hour and I feel like I'm talking to Stuart. You guys sound exactly the same. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's good or bad. Is he Irish or Italian? Or? <laughs> I know. Maybe she's like, oh my God, I can't be listening to Stuart yeah. anymore. Well, look, Sorry, I'll leave, I'll leave that you. little job with you. You put in a good word. Try and get it on here. It'd be amazing. Uh, we haven't had any absolutely. singles Grand Slam champions or world number ones on here. That No, we haven't actually. And it would be absolutely unbelievable. Just for a fun chat. Nothing too, We're not too serious here. So fun chat. And that maybe she can tell me ten things she learned practicing with you. No, oh, that she's she's learning. She's learning. I I push her. <laughs> great, great, good man. Well, good job. And yeah, thank you very much. And yeah, we chat to you soon. Absolutely, appreciate it. Have a good one. Hope you found the episode interesting with Karu. It's great to get that insight into one of the world's best tennis players. And as mentioned on the show before. The world's best aren't reinventing the wheel when practicing. They're just doing the simple things really well. I'll be back next week with episode 54. And until then, goodbye and hope you're back out hitting tennis balls on the tennis court. Bye.